0: Hello everyone, I'm Heather Ward, Senior Manager of Content Strategy at SCA, and you're listening to the SCA Podcast. Today's episode is part of our SCA lecture series, dedicated to showcasing a curated selection of the extensive live lectures offered at SCA's Specialty Coffee Expo and World Coffee Events. Check out the show notes for relevant links and a full transcript of today's lecture. This episode was recorded live at the 2018 Specialty Coffee Expo in Seattle. Visit coffeeexpo.org to learn more about this year's schedule of lectures and get your tickets. In this episode, industry leaders in espresso, including barista champions and award-winning specialty roasters, share their theories and approaches to improving espresso coffee. Together, they dive deeper into the kinds of questions many roasters have mulled over but not discussed enough. Should a roast be designed according to desired flavor profiles? Should you roast with a specific brew method in mind? To what extent should a roast be designed for a specific dose, grind, and brew ratio? Should you roast differently for milk-based espresso? How to best preserve the terroir and origin characteristics? How should the roast differ depending on rest period? Now our panel. Ben Putt of Monogram Coffee, Jeff Woodley of Ikawa, Jen Apodaca of Royal Coffee, and Tony Kiaro of Spy House Coffee Roasting Company. We'll kick things off for us, led by moderator O.M. Miles. Also, to help you follow along this podcast,
1: I'll jump in occasionally to explain who's speaking. My name's Miles. I'm with Ikawa Coffee, and I'm moderating the panel that we're all here for this morning. It's the best way to roast for espresso. Um... I'm a business development manager uh, with Akawa for the US. Uh, if you have more uh, specific questions, um, just in general, uh, we're gonna be going over an outline for the lecture soon and uh, doing our presentation and then having a, a really open dialogue. So, roasting for espresso. Uh, bad news, uh, shocker for uh, for us here. There's, there's not one best way. Um, but in the session, though, we're we're going to talk about a few different things uh, around this topic, like looking at what the folks in the industry are doing and different approaches that we have for roasting for espresso. Um, we're going to take a closer look and unpack why, the, the why behind that, why leading professionals are approaching roasting for espresso, um, looking at these ways. And we'll actually, it's going to be really great because we have some real tangible examples uh, about about that why and about how we're, how we're roasting for espresso. And then uh, in regards to future trends, we'll, we'll be able to talk about some insights here with our roasting pros and look a little bit more at, at innovations in roasting for espresso as well. So we'll also get to do a, a Q&A at the end, so if you've got some, some burning questions that are building up as we talk through the, the panel, uh, it'll be, uh, we'll have some time at the end to be able to talk through those so we've got our panel here of our roasting pros and uh we'll start with uh ben putt at actually we should have well we didn't have to sit in this order actually but ben putt he's he's down at our our end here and ben is uh ben is the the co-owner of monogram coffee based in alberta and In addition to being the co-owner at Monogram, he's a a world barista competitor and champion, uh, has gone to to world uh, level with the barista competition from Canada about three times now, and uh, is also an Ikawa user and was one of the uh, folks involved in this experiment uh, that we did with roasting for espresso. Uh, Next is Janapa Daka. She is the director of roasting for The Crown at Royal Coffee, And Jen's got about, I want to say, 13 years of roasting under her belt. Uh, She has roasted for companies uh, like Intelligentsia and Blue Bottle and um, actually does a lot of uh, educational programming at the Crown uh, with Royal. Next up is Jeff Woodley. He's the marketing manager at Ikawa, right over there, second to last. Um, And before coming to Ikawa as our marketing manager, Jeff was uh, the director of coffee for Detour Coffee in Canada. And next up, last but not least, is Tony. Uh, He is uh, the director of coffee as well at Spy House Coffee. And uh, also super experienced roaster and uses the Akawa as well uh, at Spy House. So just a little bit of background on what we did uh, in preparation for this lecture. We all had uh, a kilo of a washed Colombian coffee. Uh, it was a couture variety from the Nariño region, and uh, this coffee was uh, donated by Royal Coffee. Thanks, Jen. Yeah. Uh, and what we did was take that coffee, and you know, we had a very open-ended challenge to roast it for espresso. Next, we each shared those roast profiles. We roasted those espresso profiles on an Akawa sample roaster. We shared those profiles, uh, with primarily our, our filter, uh, Alex, who I'm going to shout out. <laughs> um, he's uh, also part of our uh, marketing team. And we all are going to explain each of those different approaches that we had, why we profiled a, a specific way, um, on the Akawa sample roaster with the intention and the mindset of using that coffee for espresso. So, before we dive into the specific individual profiles that each of our roaster, roasting experts here uh, created, I'm going to talk a little bit about what we're looking at when we, when we look at these profiles. So the red line up top, uh, data is being collected. So this is, our, our Akawa, this is the Akawa Pro app. And basically the data uh, that we're collecting from the roasting chamber, um, there's a temperature sensor actually collecting that information and plotting it in an XY graph that if we're, if majority of us are roasters here, I'm sure this looks familiar. uh, It's going to be based on the exhaust temperature. So it's helpful to keep that in mind when we're talking about these different roast profiles and how, how they were designed below that. The white line is going to be airflow and the airflow uh, specific to the roaster that the panelists were using, um, think of it, I always describe, think of it less as a damper, sort of letting cool air, in, uh, it, um, cool air into the roasting environment and think of it more as uh, actually a fan. So in the roaster, we're using a fan and pushing hot air into the roasting chamber and uh, we can control how fast or slow that fan is spinning through that airflow line. So... That's an illustration of the specific roaster that the panelists were using uh, to put it into more perspective. So, below is the fan I was referring to, the heating element above that, and then the uh, exhaust temperatures being collected by a temperature sensor inside of the roaster. So, we're going to dive right in and break down some of these individual uh, profiles that each panelist created, again, with the intention of roasting for espresso with the Colombian coffee that we all had. Uh, so to dive right in, Ben, I'd, I'd really love to hear what your what your mindset was for uh, this profile.
2: Yeah, thanks. Um, so the way I sort of approach uh, roasting the Akawa is, I think one thing that it's really highlighted for me is um, you roast to your grinder. So basically what I tried to do with this profile was um approach it in a way that i knew that i was extracting a, a certain percentage and i think you also really roast it to your brewing parameters and i think this is something that isn't often highlighted on bigger roasters because they're harder to recreate execution of stuff so i think what what it's really brought up for me is that i know this profile and how it roasts for both my grinder and for my brew ratio and i think that's been huge um so often when i roast uh, I'll create um, profiles of templates that have worked in the past. So the way I did this is I had, I've had roasted a lot of Colombian samples um, as sample roasts. And what I initially did is I just focused on the development time to see, like, can I just... When I hit first crack, can I just extend that out a little bit and will that give me enough development? And usually what happens is as I roast, um, if the coffee still sort of um, has too much acidity, I'll start to lengthen the roast to, to play with Maillard. Um I think that often... This is another thing that a cow I think works really well because you can look in and actually watch the coffee roast and change. You have a really good sense of how, when you've hit mired and how mired's sort of developing. So if I've had some espresso roasts where acid isn't a problem and they'll be a lot shorter than this, I found the Nourinho had like lots of nice acidity but had a lot of acid. The other thing I noticed with this coffee is um, um, some of the coffees cracked at very different points than others. So I tried to come into first crack. Uh, slower, because my concern was if I had a steep rate after first crack that some coffees would develop very quickly and some would still be underdeveloped. So I tried to come in soft so all the coffees had a good amount of time to develop but still uh, go through first crack.
1: I was able to explain the specifically the red and yellow lines a few minutes ago. Uh, I want to point out another color that we see in this graph and it's uh, a yellow line of basically what happened in real time. Uh, with the specific roast that Ben performed on his roaster. Um, also, he's referring to uh, development and first crack as well, so I am, think it might be helpful <laughs> for me to point out that that <coughs> line down the uh, towards the end there uh, with the lightning bolt is first crack. So the lightning bolt uh, just below that will have a time stamp for when, f- when first crack was marked. And then all the way at the bottom there is uh, DTR, which stands for development time ratio. Basically, just taking the time after uh, Ben marked that first crack there, uh, in comparison to the entire roast, and uh, having that expressed as a ratio percentage inside of the app. So, Jen, yeah, curious to hear your your pr- process with this espresso roast.
3: All right. Um, so, I uh, just recently uh, got an Ikawa, like uh, last November, and so I've just been going nuts playing with it, like uh with lots of different ways like playing with airflow and playing with uh length of roast and playing with different lengths of the of the um development stages i apologize my voice is a little rough um and so this um i i kind of did the same kind of starting point i had a very successful sample roast that i really truly enjoy and i decided to instead um play with. I really like lighter roasted espressos. Um, I like them to be sweet, but I really do also like a vibrant acidity. I'm more of the type of espresso um, fan of a more of a long shot. So um, I roasted for that type of espresso. Um, I decided to shorten my drying stage and move my Maillard time up by 30 seconds compared to my sample roast to give it more time for Maillard to happen, to occur. Um, One thing that I also did is my airflow. Um, I've played a lot with the airflow. It's been really, really fun. I've been, I've been having like descending airflow. I've had, um, rising airflow. I did this like V format thing has been really fun. I've been really liking this one. Um, and then like even like a flat lined airflow, but, um, in this particular one, um, I decreased my fan speed, um, about the same time that you will notice that yellowing stage would occur. Um, and at that point, the fan speed, um, you know, it slows down. So you um, when you slow the fan speed down, you, uh, you, um, you have the heat that you're able to retain a little bit more heat. But also, like, potentially you're having, um, I don't know, maybe we're having a little bit of a conduction heat transfer at that moment. I'm not exactly sure if that's truly happening, but I wanted to see if it would work. Um, and then rising towards the end for uh, smoke abatement as well. Um, so this, yeah, I don't know what else. Um, I wanted to keep the same amount of, uh, post crack development time, um, as my typical sample roast though. Um, I didn't, I wanted like a really bright, bright acidity and that most of that comes from the fact that I wanted more of a long, a long shot espresso, which I think that those go really nicely together. Awesome. I, Je- <coughs> uh, Jeff
1: Sorry. curious to hear about your profile as well.
4: All right, so um, I approached this a little bit differently. I thought it would be interesting to approach this from a uh, perspective of uh, maybe a retail bag being taken home for a, a home barista or uh, milk drinks. So um, I approached this to uh, create a, an espresso that was uh, quite easy to work with, and a little bit lower in acidity, um, with lots of body, lots of syrupy uh, sweet. Um, uh, sort of a sticky, uh, great base for a, uh, uh, an easy espresso or a milk drink. Um, so um, there's a f- significant amount of development on this one. Um, so it's it's uh, I approached this wanting to make sure that there was um, uh, it was still um, retaining the character of this coffee. It's really nice, bright. Um, Colombian coffee, but with the goal of reducing the acidity down to a point where it was uh, easy to work with and um, at the same time balancing out some of that sweetness and character that's in there in that coffee uh, naturally. Um, so this spent qu- I spent quite a bit of time in the mired uh, stage with a lot of heat to uh, really try and build uh, some body um, and then uh, after first crack keeping a fair amount of heat on there to um, I f- I've, I've found um, it wasn't just time that, after first crack, that was relevant to uh, how that coffee tasted. I found actually like a declining or an even um, return. It's the, it's the exhaust temperature um, sort of flat, flattened out some of the the character in the coffee, and I found that actually a, a gently increasing re- that exhaust temperature after first crack counterintuitively actually retain more espresso of uh, the acidity and character in the coffee um while balancing out like i said some of that um acidity lengthening that time after first crack so
1: great thank you jeff tony curious to hear
5: yeah. it <laughs> um so for mine um i've worked at the for two or three years now um and uh, do all my sample roasting on it so i uh, ultimately i looked at the coffee it was a Colombian. it was Narino, it was you know medium high elevation it was you know medium high density so i treated the same way i treat most of my samples and just ran my sample profile on it um this profile is one that i've um adopted initially from the one ikawa published by rob who's a couple years ago on their on their blog um and I worked it. And it's kind of my it, a variation of my standard uh, sample profile. Uh, kept it with my team, and we kind of looking at the three major factors we look at in coffee. To, you know, total end temp, sweetness, acidity. What flavors are we seeing in this coffee? What do we want to maximize? What do we want to change? Um, we found this coffee had a lot of sweetness, um, and the the acidity was very nice. Uh, Poking on that edge of clementine, that like sweet orange, or just a little bit of sparkle. Um, so, what I did to do that, um, I same way you profile any other coffee, and working with your myards, your end temps, your post-correct development time, um, knowing how those elements work, you know, treat it the same way. So, I wanted a little bit. Um, I wanted to uh, reduce the. The amount of – like, the sugar was just getting a little too bakey, chocolatey kind of stuff. So we rolled up that uh, first crack time to, to focus specifically on our mired, um, And then we um, kept our end temp the exact same. Um, we knew that it was about in the area that we wanted. But that whole perceived experience of – like, when you add – you know, salt is a flavor enhance. You add salt to a dish. Everything gets better. Um, you add acidity to, you add lemon juice to a dish and because you're adding lemon, you're only adjusting acidity but other flavors taste different. We didn't change our end temp at all. We just played with our sweetness and acidity and that locked everything and made our perceived end temp kind of lock right in where we wanted to. Um, one thing that um, I like playing with on the cow, like Jen said, is the airflow and very similarly, you can see that I keep turning away from the mic. I'm sorry. <laughs> you can see that I kind of have that little dip right away, and then I flatline the airflow. Um, one thing I like doing in my roasts is working with airflow a lot and um, using lower airflows in the beginning and the end to um, allow heat transfer with moisture still in the beam. So I'm trying not to dry it out. The Kawa being a fluid bed roaster, you will always have fan going. It That's what transfers heat. Um So what I do is, uh, get my fan speed up where I want it and then drop the fan right away. And sometimes I'll have, if it's a denser coffee needs more energy, I'll actually shake the roaster a little bit to get the fluid bed moving, but I keep it as low as it can go to keep the, the beans moving. So we're not just like having them sitting on one spot and getting uneven roasts. Um, and that's just been kind of a little, little trick I learned. Um, so go ahead and take that home with you, guys.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Tony. I, I haven't heard of that trick before, but I'm gonna give it a try. Uh, a few observations on on my end just before we dive into the more into the specifics of es- espresso and and uh, its relevance as well in in roasting. Um, I think it's it's just again just an observation it's kind of fascinating that this is maybe one of the first conversations that i've had with roasters and i consider y'all some of my, my my close colleagues at this point and you know we have these conversations so often and it's it's kind of frustrating sometimes because when we talk about roasting it's so easy to get into that area of well you can talk about what you experience and you can talk about it but there's no way to to really know because we're all we're all on a different page the Temp sensors were uh, different, or different thermocouple, different placement, different size, and um, different airflow, things like that. But uh, I just, I'm pretty proud that this is finally, you know, one of those discussions where we can all be on the same page. We all use the same green coffee. We really uh, are on the same page with a lot of the variables that we're using to have this conversation. Uh, so, just wanted to share that as one of my my personal observations. I don't know if anyone here has had that same experience with roasting conversations. Sometimes it can be so, uh, you know, uh, you want it to be so productive, but it's hard because you're, we're all working with so many different machines. Uh, other observation that I had is that it's, it's really interesting that, uh, a lot of, a lot of you were saying that you started with sort of a sample roast profile and then built up from there. Um, I'm really, and who, whoever wants can start with this, but I'm really curious to hear uh, actually about how you kind of stepped to your process from roasting to cupping and then to espresso? Or did you skip out on the, uh, on the cupping portion and, and jump right into tasting the coffee that you roasted in that specific brew method? Um, I, I feel like a lot of times, a lot of things can get lost in translation. I've definitely tasted a coffee that cups really well, but then when we throw it, throw it into, uh, into the grinder and pull it as an espresso, it has a whole other personality.
0: Speaking now is Jeff Woodley.
3: Um,
4: uh, I, I, I did uh, a classic, uh, like my, one of my go-to sample roast profiles for, the, uh, for this coffee, just to get a sense of what it tasted like before I profiled it for espresso. Um, and I did cup that out next to some very like, obviously very different-looking um, espresso roasts, um, but I, and I kind of got a sense of what those coffees tasted like, but I didn't make any final decisions before pulling them. For espresso.
0: Speaking now is Ben Putt.
2: Uh for me, um a big thing about Akawa is that your um if you take good data and, and save profiles and delete if you delete the profiles that are bad, I think that's one of the keys. <laughs> yeah. Is it essentially essentially your profiles evolve. And I think that's mm-hmm. something really interesting. Is if I if I go through mine and I look at the first profile I used to the last, they have changed and evolved. And so you you sort of go down a path. Like I think if you look at all of these Like, it actually is very similar to evolution. They're all very different. And I imagine... I'm very curious to try all of them because I imagine they all make good coffee. But I think what's happened is we've all started down a path where we've had, for me, like it is based on a a cupping profile, but obviously it's, it's a fair bit longer. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I have some espresso profiles that are shorter that I think the big thing is if you are careful with your iterations, your profiles, especially on espresso will slowly evolve and change. And so for me, the, this profile slowly got a little bit longer just so I could get a bit more mired. But I think that's a a big thing for me is that they sort of evolve from cupping to something else based on like you deleting the ones that didn't perform well. And, and then though it's, it's very much like natural selection for me.
0: Yeah. Speaking
3: now is Jen Apodaca. Um, I also, I did like, so I did four, four roasts. Um, I did like the, the one that I said, the sample roast that I really enjoy. I did, um, a, a colleague's sample roast that's always performed really well. Um, I did a longer roast that was a little bit more, um, developed to, accentuate like more of like a really good espresso for maybe like uh, for milk drinks, kind of what you were talking about earlier. And, um, I did one other one. I can't remember exactly what I did, but I tried, I tried those four and I tasted the one that I thought that had the best, um, flavor development, which is, um, the one that I ended up modifying to get what I, what I have now. And that one, although this coffee has like a really wonderful, um, it has a really nice bright acidity. It's really juicy. Um, in that particular roast, I got more toasted marshmallow, like that vanilla. And that's actually one thing that I really, really enjoy in espresso that sort of perfectly toasted vanilla marshmallow, you know? So knowing that I had that, I was able to go from there and I I cupped again. I also really think that when you cup coffees for, um, whether you're going to use them for espresso or for filter, you need to have a lot of, um, uh, not not really tackiness for me, but I really enjoy when you can actually like, it feels like raw sugar, like that you can feel the sugar on your tongue. And I think that that means that when you then transfer that roasted coffee to uh, the person who is going to um, brew it, they have a little bit more to manipulate with um, their brewing equipment and on the espresso um, machine. Now, I am not a barista, so I don't know. I mean, I can pull a shot if like, nobody else is around you know i mean and i know how to clean a machine and i know how to change a group head but i don't know how to like i am not i have never worked um at a specialty coffee shop i worked at a pre-specialty coffee shop but um that was the dark ages so um So I fortunately have a colleague who helped me pull shots and I told, and she helped me work through like knowing what kind of espresso I was trying to go for. And so again, like my profile really is for that more long shot, um, that, that I really like is it was really sparkly, but it still had enough, like a. Toasted brown sugar. So we worked through like some recipes that we thought would work really well with this profile. Um, But one other thing I wanted to say is my profile is really short, and I know that it's short. And so um, one thing I noticed too, Ben, that there was um, a lot of variance in roast degree, especially if I'm going to pull that, pull, have a very short profile. So I just picked out anything that looked. um, I just did like a pick afterwards. I picked out anything that looked a little underdeveloped or Quakers. So. Um, if you roast my profile, you have to do maybe a couple batches and sort through.
1: <laughs> Are you saying we need to buy an optical sorter to you, test
0: you,
2: out?
3: There's a know? little more there's than just roasting. Yeah. Speaking now is Tony Carrow.
5: Um For me, um, I, I really approach this um, how I would approach it for my cafe purposes. Um, so, uh, you know, I, we we don't Often have copies that are dedicated single origin espressos. We have a coffee that, when we have it in on the cupping table, we have it in brew. It you it just this is going to be a great espresso, and um, you know it, it's espresso is a brew method, um, and every every coffee will shine better on some brew methods than another. Like it's not a hard black and white statement, um, you know, if you do an immersion brew of certain coffees, you're going to lose their delicacy. Um, you do large batch brews of a very dynamic coffee and some of those dynamics get muddled. Um, you do a small batch of a very dynamic coffee and every cup's different to different. Like coffees are unique in themselves, but at the end of the day, if we treat coffee like coffee, um, and kind of see its uniform uniformness, um, in a positive manner, uh, I don't. We don't change as much. We try to make our jobs easier, and I try to make my jobs for my baristas easier. Um, so this was I. I was looking for something that wouldn't like make this copy the best it would be, but also not an outlier. That it'd be uniform. That if if I were to pass this across the bar to a barista and say, "Hey, dial this in for me." they would be able to start with our starting specs and, and kind of be on spot. Um, like I think as an overarching thing as roasters, like your job will be a lot easier if you try and make the people who serve the end products <laughs> job easier. You know, if you have really crazy out there specs, like it, your coffee may taste amazing that way, but you have to do a lot of reteaching. And then how do you, like if you're a wholesaler, um, in that kind of situation where how do you sell that to an account? Because they're probably going to treat it the way they treat most other coffees. So like, yes, we need to advance things, um, but advance, be true to yourself, um, develop your signature and do your signature and, and consistently do that.
1: I feel like some, uh, some people could, uh, argue that espresso, you know, when you, when we look back, you know, all the way back to the, kind of uh, origin story of, of the drink that maybe it wasn't even initially designed to be very tasty um, it was definitely a, a need-based quick drink uh, you know a very quick way and an express way if you will to have your coffee or your cup of coffee in the morning or throughout the afternoon um, I'm interested just to, to hear from y'all uh, why why do you think that Uh, as roasters, especially. So I know some of us have had, uh, you know, experience being on the barista side of things, but why for us as roasters, might it uh, just be relevant to understand how to roast for espresso? And um, I know the the word intention has come up a few times and we've talked about reverse engineering some things. So starting with the idea of what we want from our espresso and then working back from there, um, why, why would it be relevant for us to, to understand how to, how to create that end product
0: about to speak is ben put
2: like why delve into espresso yeah uh i think espresso often is the worst drink we serve um i think it's um it's so strong Mm. uh if the acid is off it's so sour like we all I, i often think of like baristas and roasters it's like we all drink it's like the people that drink whiskey, right like they can drink whiskey and it doesn't really affect them, and then you give whiskey to someone that's never had whiskey before and it's like they hate it mm-hmm. um and we d- and but people like whiskey, but in our industry, sometimes I drink espressos that like I can barely stomach and it it's not because like anyone's bad at roasting or brewing it's just because it's so hard, and I think more. To me, like filter roasting is also very hard, but espresso, like if it doesn't go well, you're making like the strongest potentially grossest drink that we charge people money for, and yeah. and even like I compare buying an espresso in a shop to like buying a lottery ticket. Like you're spending about the same amount. It's like two to three dollars, and your odds are you know one yeah. in a couple million, and and like I just tol- I totally understand, and like I I'm not I'm not like throwing shade at anything, but it's just such a hard brew method um like if the roast is off it's yeah. it's going to be really tricky if the grinder's not behaving um you get sort of one shot at you don't get to taste it like if i batch brew i can i know what i'm serving uh, so i just think the reason we need to focus on it is because it is just so stinking hard
0: about to speak is jeff woodley
4: um yeah um i think it, it, i've definitely been discouraged with espresso in the past like roasting for espresso um and then you do finally hit that, that roast. You feel like, Oh, I've nailed this. And then the interesting thing is if you go to a wholesale account, you'll see the lineup. And then, uh, n- like 19 out of 20 people are ordering latte to go or something yeah. like that as well. So it is, it is, I think, um, something we, we can benefit from p- paying more attention to and, and making it better throughout. Um, I'm guilty of, you know, definitely ordering the filter more often than an espresso and, and because of exactly what you were saying there. But, um, it, you know, things like this, I think this really is fascinating. To, I, I've learned a lot already today on this. And uh, the more we can, like, dive into the specifics of, uh, of roasting for espresso, I think the better we can make um, everybody's experience from that home barista to uh, a wholesale account or, or a, a, you know, a flagship cafe. Mm-hmm. Um, uh Regarding roasting for espresso or for like to drink it black or for a milk drink, I think is even a a separate discussion altogether. But
5: yeah.
0: About to speak is Tony Kiro.
5: Um for me, like totally echo that thought of es- espresso is scary. And um learning learning to roast for espresso is very hard because your variables are magnified so much. You know, and what, what is espresso to one person, is not espresso to another person. Like, you come down to filter coffee, and yeah, there's a range in dose, a little bit. There's a range in times. But like, with espresso, we're putting the weight of a kindergartner through a little puck of coffee for 30 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's so intense. And then, you know, you have your old school espressos, your new school espressos. Like, it's... Es- Espresso can be anything right now, like that's that's the world we're in. So, um, it's scary, and you know if you're doing a if you have a multi-bean blend in espresso, you're saying it's a ratio of two to one or whatever, but you put in like nineteen beans in that grinder, like it's every shot's not the same nineteen. So it's it's hard, it's scary, um, and that's where like kind of echoing what I said before is knowing what you do and how you do it is going to narrow that so much. And understanding that like the espresso you may get in you know, the cafes I work in, is not going to be the same as you're going to get in Ben's cafe, um, or, or go to the crown. Like it's, we have our different approach and different styles, but we're making our product for that. And that end result, um, helps a lot.
3: About to speak is Jen Apodaca. So I'm in the unique position right now because I work for an importer and I teach. And um, I'm often, I have people come up to me like, well, often like customers of ours will write to me and they want to, they want to get better at their craft. And where I'm like, I've worked for a couple companies where when you work for a company, you know, like what, kind of menu they want like you know what kind of coffees they buy you know what kind of flavors they want to give to their customers you know and so as a roaster your job is to put your ego aside and roast for what uh your roast how you're supposed to you're supposed to deliver on flavor you know the flavors that they want to promote the flavors they want to sell the flavors that they have their brand behind but now in um in the capacity that i'm at now um, my first question for whoever wants to ask me, like, how can I get better at what I do? It's like, well, what do you want to do? And, uh, I consult and speak with people who roast well after second crack to people who maybe pull even before second crack has happened, you know? So, um, it's a wide range of, of, it's a wide range of possibilities. Let me tell you. And we're not, we haven't even talked about whether they have washed coffees or, you know, natural coffees and, Um, what they believe about milk drink building and I mean there's so many variables Um, but one thing that has been said to me a lot which um, I find really interesting is that folks who roast light always think that it's so easy to roast dark and those who and they're like, oh, you know, they're like, it's so easy to roast dark. You just have to burn the coffee. It's not even a big deal. You know, like roasting light is what's really hard. And then I talk to folks who are um, really love dark roasted coffees. And they're like, gosh, it's so easy to be a light roaster. I mean, you just like hear one snip and just pull the coffee out into the <laughs> cooling tray. I mean, are they even trying, you know? And, um, and it's interesting that I can hear it from both sides. And what I can tell you is if you spend a lot of time and if you want to roast and roasting for espresso, roasting for whatever, you are roasting for is that it's really hard to do all of them. And, um, and then if you go into like the different processes of the coffees and different origins, it's even harder, you know? So um, speaking towards roasting um, on the dark side, since I, I did not give you my dark side roast, um, I will say one thing specifically about espresso that I think was a misconception when I was a younger roaster was that um, we would extend development time quite a bit. Um, trying to build more sugar, you know, because we're caramelizing, we're reducing sugars and uh, we are reducing sugars, but we're also creating a lot of dry distillate flavors. We're also losing a lot of our organic compounds in there. So I would suggest if you are um, roasting, and you want like a darker roast for your espresso. I would suggest... No problem. Reach that high end temperature, but maybe even shorten your um, your uh, post crack development time because you'll be able to retain. You'll be able to get that um, caramelization that you're looking for with um, that final um, high end temperature. But. You'll also retain a lot of the organic acids that will like also keep that acidity and um, just um, structure. You'll also be able to uh, yield more <laughs> after you roast the coffee, <laughs> and you'll probably be able to use a less uh, smaller dose, so you'll save money. Um, but it, I think it would taste better too. So,
1: Jen, I'm I'm actually I'm, I I'm I want to know your uh, your if there, if there was motivation to use, to use a, sh- a shorter roast.
3: You uh, only asked me for one profile. I could have given you three. <laughs> okay. Okay.
1: Okay. <laughs> I, I just bring it up because it in terms of just some of this, yeah. I'm looking at each of these profiles and there's a few kind of, um, you know, there's a few different differentiating factors with each one. Yeah. Um, I, when I, I look at yours, I see the, the shorter time. And of course, like in comparison to the, the longer profiles, um, Ben, I see your, uh, increased, uh, airflow, especially at the, the end of the row. So when that cooling time has started, um, Tony, you're, I think one of your your standouts of your profile is definitely the, um, the way that you've designed the airflow line. Um, and then Jeff, I think your, for me, it's uh, that your profile has that kind of S shape that we're all really familiar with. Um, I think I know we can 't jump into all of those all at one time, but um, if if you had if each of you had sort of a a driving variable that you were adjusting specifically for espresso, whether it be you know i I feel like we 've talked about mayard a bit, so whether it was uh, manipulating that or um, really manipulating more so uh, the the airflow, I think there's um, Airflow is a really curious, you know, it's an area where a lot of people have questions. So, um, I think if someone had that as a, a driving factor, you know, I know it's hard to pick one cause it's, you know, roasting, it's working with a lot of variables, putting to, putting them together in a way that works specific for that coffee and its intention. But if you, uh, would you say anyone here had, uh, really the airflow as one of the primary variables in mind when you were making your profile?
3: I've seen a yes from you Jen. Um, I mean, I think all of the, I think I think that that's like a primary concern on this roaster yeah I mean it that's everything to do with your heat transfer. I mean yeah. if you're talking about a drum machine, then your your airflow could be a, a damper at the back what you're what you're doing is you're if by opening your airflow you are um, releasing like smoke and chaff you know, but you're also reducing your heat so a lot of times, if you roast on a machine like that, then you are when you increase the airflow, you might even like bump the heat before you increase the airflow to make sure that you have enough heat. You know, if you imagine like opening an oven, mm-hmm. and before you open the oven door, all your heat's gonna go out of your oven when you're baking those cookies or whatever. So it's kind of like that on a drum roaster, where it's much different here.
1: Yeah.
3: Here, like, uh, you know, the the way the machine works is you you right like you have like you set your your where you want your um, temperature to be. And then you're adjusting your fan speed, and the machine will determine how much heat it needs to get to where you want to go based on those two parameters. So it's like driving a co- completely different car when you're and so you have to think about it um, in those terms. Um, I would say like you know some part of me still thinks about like smoke abatement because I've been roasting on drum machines for so long. but it might not actually be a very big concern on the Yukawa, so. You say that because of the the cyclone. Cuz yeah, cuz the cyclone's always pulling. You know, I mean like I don't yeah. you won't des- I am uh, under the impression that your machine will not let us have zero airflow cuz it probably catch on fire.
1: Yeah. Yeah. exactly. That's that's exactly so <laughs> It will go to 60. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you can go to zero. 60, 60 with, to 100. 60 yeah. to 100.
4: Um, <laughs>
0: about to speak is Tony Kiro.
5: So so for me um, it's that same kind of concept. Like one thing that uh, Miles addressed in the in the beginning is you only have an exhaust probe on this roaster, no. so these curves may look very different than what you've seen in um, other devices, or um, you know, it's it's not that S shaped curve that we're used to seeing because we're only looking at, at the exhaust and um, the, the, like Jenna's saying, you're, you're driving. You're, it's like you're driving a different machine, but it's also driving that machine backwards on what you're used to. You're saying, "I want this is how I." So I'm I'm used to manipulating my gas. If I want my bean temperature to go up, I give it more gas. But this machine, it's all driven off of what the exhaust is determining how to keep an exhaust airline. So if you have a higher differential on your exhaust line. Then it's going to pump more heat into it, and the same way with it with it being f- fan driving hot air versus fan driving cold air. If you can see in my profile where I'm in, I have increases. They're they're working together because if I'm increasing air and I'm blowing hot air, I'm pushing more energy at the same time. If I go to change the other one and I, but I keep that s- constant. I'm. I've not only manipulated that factor. These are factors that work together in any, even in a drum roaster. It's less of a, of a factor in drum roaster because you have more conductive energy and you have direct flame um, ele, elements as well. Um, but anytime, unless any, those two factors are working together at all times in all roasters.
1: Um, I think it was Tony. Uh, you were talking about how you actually kept the same starting and end point with, uh, your profile and, uh, adjusted basically everything in between with that. Um, I'm curious with, you know, I see your, with your profile, you have the incline, more of a sharp incline mm-hmm. happening after a certain period of time. Uh, what was your, uh, I'm sure you, you might've yep. touched on this already just a little bit, but I'm, curious why? to know, yeah, why, why that, <laughs> that increase at that time. So like much later in the roast.
5: Yeah. So, um, the, this profile, which I adopted from, um, another roaster, um, you can go back and find it on Ikawa's uh, blog. Um, it, it was designed to replicate the standard SEA cupping profile. Um, being an air roaster, things are going to move faster. Um, there's just more energy transfer. Uh, so the, the reason why the the airflow, uh, the exhaust temperature so low for so long is I'm trying to extend uh, my drying period as long as possible to kind of get things more into a realm that I'm more familiar with off of coming... Like, I came from a ProBat uh, pr one sample roaster. Um, so when I had to switch and buy coffee space on another machine, well, I'm going to make this easy for myself. Um, so using a low temperature, low air... Sp- I'm trying to re- retain moisture inside do energy transfer using water transfers energy better than cellular plant cellular structure cellulose doesn't transfer energy while water does so I'm keeping those keeping as much moisture in the bean as long as possible and being that this is a fan driven roaster there drying wants to happen faster you're blowing away the moisture you put a fan over a puddle, And you put a fan and just a puddle there, and the puddle with the fan is going to dry out faster. Um, so that's kind of the point of that. So it's right at, um, right when I'm coming out of drying, um, so you know, I'm being just starting to turn yellow. That's when I ramp the heat up, um, because I've gotten, it's giving off most of its moisture at that point. There's moisture still created, um, through the chemical reactions, but I'm trying to get drying as long as I can to get back into a more normal situation.
1: And you you touched on, a, on the topic of moisture briefly. Um, does anyone here use kind of, you know variables from those uh, the met- ver- any metrics that you're getting from the green coffee specifically? You know things like the moisture content or density, uh, w- water activity. We've we've seen a lot of different profiles that are based on that. Again, not usually for the the context of espresso, but did y- did y'all find that with this coffee measuring those things helped you? create the, pr- these profiles for the espresso
3: about yeah. to speak is Jen Apodaca. One of the ways that I adapted it is, um, see that there's like three, there's three points before the, um, before the end of the roast and the V, like I have the V going down. I have, um, the bot, it bottoms out, um, right where my art is or right where yellow stage begins. But I decided to, um, increase the fan speed just Um, before first crack a little bit. And that was because this is a dense coffee and I know that if I increase the fan speed that it'll have to kick my heater on harder. Mm -hmm. And so that way I can give it a little bit more power going through first crack, which will kind of maybe make them all, make it crack a little bit closer um, to each other because there was some variance. Speaking next is Ben Putt.
2: Uh, I didn't use many metrics uh, in terms of measuring, I think, but I think naturally you tend to. Um, this is an aside, but I think it's one of your colleagues. Jen did a, a mm-hmm. study on water Correct. activity versus yep. mired. Mm-hmm. Um, so, mm-hmm. if anyone's curious in that, I, I think it was like one of the best articles written about yeah. it, uh, which is super super interesting.
3: Awesome. And where where can folks find it?
2: Find that uh, is it on your is it on your blog?
3: Yeah, it's royalcoffee.com. It's on our blog, and you search up water activity. His name is Chris Cornman. You could also search up. He's written a bunch of stuff about density as well. It's really yeah. good stuff.
2: It was like one of the most eye-opening things on, I think we have all used um, water activity to give us an idea of how long green will last, but the article really dives into how to roast uh, based on water activity, which is super interesting.
3: So higher water activity, more potential for sugar browning. That's happening during the Maillard stage. Um, So you might see accelerated Maillard on higher water activity coffees.
1: And, and I know we've been talking a lot throughout the lecture specific to the Akawa, too, but things like that as well are, are – these are general mm-hmm. green and, and roast concepts as well that exist both with a primarily convective roaster and, and also uh, roasters with different ratios of convective to conductive heat transfer or, or direct heat or with an electric burner or with a, an atmospheric burner. Um, these are kind of uni- universal ways to approach how, y- how you can profile – uh, for espresso or, or otherwise as well.
0: Speaking next is Tony Caro.
5: Uh, one change I made coming kind of off the previous question, um, this was a rel- I mean, it's a Colombian-Norreño, you know, had normal water activity, normal moisture. It's pretty dense, dense coffee. So I knew I had enough cellular material and water uh, still present inside that, that bean to be able to use a lower heat application, lower density coffees and coffees with lo- lower moisture, you don't, you ha- you have to hit them harder. Um, I have to hit them harder. As you can see, there's four roasts up here that are all probably very good because I look up to all three of you a lot and this is really intimidating. Um, <laughs> these are probably all good. So take that as a positive and you go home that There's a lot of different ways to make good coffee. Um, But if this was a lower density coffee, had lower moisture, I would, that the temperature where I do that first bump would be higher. I would be giving the roaster more heat to get into my drying phase. um, Just because there's less material that I want to transfer energy there to do it.
1: And we're going to be in a few minutes here, switching into uh, a Q and a, and we've, We've slated out a, a decent amount of time to, to cover a few questions uh, that, that anyone here might have for, uh, for the panelists. Uh, but before we get to that, though, just general, uh, you know, if we can go down the line with general roasting uh, recommendations for espresso. Um, maybe some of, uh, I think specifically it helps to maybe demystify a little bit uh, that process for folks and what, what would be one of the biggest recommendations that that, that you have for for anyone here? Another, another Speaking
0: now is Ben Putt.
2: So I think uh, Jen hit the nail on the head for a mm-hmm. lot of it is that mm-hmm. people, people have sort of glorified first crack quite a bit. And I think it's super important. Like I'm not saying don't worry about first crack, but people will often only adjust first crack. Um, and I think a part of it is because it's super easy to measure. Like you hear the coffee crack you can start timing that. And I think, um, especially for espresso, all the stuff that happens before first crack is is super important. I think, um, I think it was Ben Kaminsky once said that once the coffee, once you see mired happen on the coffee, technically it's developing. Um, And I think that is a huge part of of figuring out your espressos is how long is your mired time based on that, not just based on first crack. And I think lots of, like some other roasting companies are starting to focus on that as well. I think the other big one for espresso, so, When you cup filter or brew filter, we're all on very similar pages, um, similar brew ratios. Um, I think the big thing, I think something good and bad, EK Espresso has allowed us to evaluate coffees very easily and very quickly, but I think they have made it so they don't always transfer well once you put them in a shop. Um, So if you are profiling your, let's say I'm sitting in a roastery, I have an EK I have like perfectly formulated water i'm extracting to 23 percent and the shots are big and then suddenly you go to a cafe that's using an old an old robur or something and it's pulling 18 percent and you don't know why it tastes good like you should know like so i think that's the other big thing is really understand what what are your customers pulling your espresso on are they using a grinder that's giving them 19 percent? and if they are and you should be tasting your coffee at 19% or or working with them to do that. I think that's the big thing about espresso is that recipe is so key that it if if you're profiling for in a, an environment that is different than the actual service environment, your your profiles will never work.
0: About to speak is Jeff Woodley.
4: But I, no, I, less on the technical side, but I think um for me I I would say that it's uh, it should be very purposeful. There's like I think it should be a lot of um, intent with uh, a result when when chasing a good espresso and it's it, because uh we talked about how difficult espresso is i think that there has to be some versatility in the result you have to understand that like the the end result isn't going to be the same every time we want it to be but as ben said your your gr- the grinders are going to be different the environments are different the water is going to be different and um create creating an espresso roast in, a, in in a in a very like confined environment where there's only one grinder or one one person developing that is not going to give you a result that's maybe going to work as well for everybody as uh, one that you um, test in different environments, have different people using it. Um, only cupping espresso roast, I think, uh, is challenging. I think um, pulling it on different machines and making sure that the um, if, if the intent is to wholesale or to, to sell this coffee, then it should work well for as many people as possible. So.
0: Speaking next is Jen Apodaca.
3: I'm not really sure what I should say. <laughs> you know, I mean, I just, I, overall, in roasting, um, which is probably the only advice I can give, is um, just always remember that time as well as temperature is, like to, is, um, is, uh, is affecting your coffee. You know, like the longer the times are, your coffee is going to be losing the organic compounds because it's the longer exposure to heat. Um, if you want to have a really like high acidity coffee, then find a way to extend your Maillard time so that you can create more aromatics, um, and development time before that. But, um, and if you want a longer post-crack development time, if you want more time for the the caramelization to occur, even like shortening your Maillard, because they both kind of go hand in hand, you can't really like lengthen one without in, uh, lengthening your total roast time. So like, um, if you're going to lengthen your drying stage, then you have to like, also it's going to affect how long everything else is. So, um, all three of those stages, drying stage, my stage and, um, and your post-crack development time. They all play together. It's more of like a, I have a 12 minute roast and where am I going to move my sliders? You can't just, if you lengthen one, then next thing you know, you have a 14, 15 minute roast and it's going to dramatically affect the flavor of your coffee. Speaking
0: now is Tony Kiero.
5: Um, patience. Um, is one of the easy things with profiling for filter is you can turn around in a couple days and make your change. Um, you know, espresso, Tense and you know often in classic forms gets a little bit more rest to let some of the gases come off and stuff, and it can be really hard as a roaster to after you've done those first few batches, you got a good idea of what's going on to have to wait that time period to like you're going to want to do what you feel like you should do, but then it takes a lot of a lot of data tracking and stuff to remember what. You know, you you can't you can't not make a change for maybe you know the ten day cycle that it may that you may run on for your normal espresso. Um, if you know something needs to change, you need to change. But then you have to evaluate that first one based on what you did the first time, not what you're doing right now, because you may have made changes, and that's that's hard. Um, um huh? Yeah. R- r- write down as much stuff because. It's You think you may remember, but you're, you're not going to remember. Uh, <laughs> someone's going to ask you another question in the middle of you doing that batch, and you're going to get flustered, and um, stuff happens. Um, record everything. Um, and then, like like Jen has been saying, profiling is profiling. And know how to profile. The skills for profiling Espresso... There's a little bit further removed that we all talked about with recipe and everything, but if you know how to adjust sweetness, if you know how to adjust acidity, if you know how to adjust roast level, you know how to adjust myards, um drying times, post correct development, those factors transfer. Um the one thing that like I always try to push to people is coffee science is science. Coffee is a plant and when it's roasting is a heat application it should be plants should behave like plants um food should behave like food and if like we mystify a lot of this and we come up with theories that don't align with other you know watch cooking shows talk to chefs see how they do things to get the same results because we're all dealing with organic matter and flavor compounds
1: yeah i i took a few like one word takeaways from from uh all of your answers, and uh, I think some some big things to remember in, in the I guess the overall roasting for espresso process would be um, data like you're mentioning, whether it's digital or manual capture data, take notes that you can refer to later. Be patient. Uh, modulation, the little things in the roast. Um, again, we were talking about first crack a lot, but there's a lot of other things involved in that process that. Are really important milestones and things to take note of uh, intention was one I wrote, and then communication as well I think co- collaboration could kind of be under or related to that communication uh, topic but um, yeah i I think we covered a lot of ground and um, it was really great that we actually had some profiles to to refer to with each of our individual processes. Um, want to open it up a little bit and. Uh, If anyone here has any questions or just generally wants to share their experience with roasting for espresso or found that anything that we were talking about resonated, please feel free to share.
0: A member of the audience is asking, what do you think of the multi-bean blends compared to single-origin coffees?
3: Um, Blends are great. Um, I'm, I'm a fan of blends. I'm blend positive. Speaking now is Jen Apodaca. Um, I did not create that as such a cool word though, but I got it from those guys at modern times So I give them credit, but, um, I would just say, be wary of, um, your blend components. If you're creating a flagship, um, blend, you know, then it needs to be consistent year round or you need to. Maybe address having seasonal blends. Um, make sure that you know not every coffee that you put in your blend is going to be available at its uh, prime flavor um, year round. So you may have to change every six months or three months. So uh, make sure that your flavor profile that you're trying to create is is a sustainable flavor that you can create year round. That would, that's my advice. And then also, I would recommend not getting too crazy. Like um, I wouldn't. I personally wouldn't do more than a five bean blend. Um, If you think about, if you think if you're doing something for like large batch brew and you're putting in like uh, 90 grams or 200 grams, in for a big batch brew, then there's a really good possibility that your blend percentage ratio will be the same in that big batch brew. But maybe maybe not in a border filter when you're doing seventeen grams. So it's like seventeen grams is like I counted it out with like three or four different types of coffees. But um um dark roasted, light roasted and Ethiopians, I like wanted to know. But it's like hundred and thirty beans. So um if you have like a seven bean blend, like you might not have consistent shots. I, That's what I, by math, I would say that that's probably true. But from experience, I think these guys might know better.
1: Probability (laughs) is probability.
0: A member of the audience is asking, what are your feelings on post-blending versus pre-blending?
2: Like post-roast and pre-roast blending.
0: Speaking now is Ben Putt.
2: I think the big thing is um, when you're doing a blend, you have to make sure that you're matching solubilities across the coffees um, because you're going to put... That co- all that coffee is going to get ground at the same um, grind setting, and it's also going to get brewed at the same brew ratio, unless something really weird happened. Um, so I think that's a, a big thing. I think it's if you were going to do pre-blend, pre-roast blending, um, you would have to make sure you had very similar solubility coffees. I think the advantage of blending afterwards is you can roast to the correct solubility. I think that's, that's huge. You want to make sure that when you're pulling espressos that are blends, that they're both extracting at percentages that... You feel are making the coffee sing, and, and that will also allow you to go back and adjust those roasts accordingly. Um, and I also think it's important to taste the components separately.
0: Speaking next is Jen Apodaca.
3: I'm going to disagree with you. Oh really? Okay. Yeah, I don't know. That's kind of cool, right? Yeah, yeah. maybe. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I I I think that you can do both, and I think that they're really, both are really hard. Okay, um, it can be really easy to do. Uh, post blending, but, but you can actually and, and you have to work really, really hard at it and you have to completely change your profiles. Um, if you're gonna try and pre-blend, it is accomplishable. I mean, but it's really hard. and you and you need to be honest and have like a really good blind panel to make sure that you're creating the same that that they can't tell which one is which. So just be honest and like let people give you the criticism, but but you have to do a lot of hard work to get there. Okay, so it it is possible. You should do what what you think is best. I mean, coffees roast at different ways. Um, So, some coffees with certain heat application will roast quicker than others. Um, With solubility, this is where the one thing that I think is kind of weird because I've and I and uh, and from my perspective, and not um, you know like darker roasted coffees or coffees that have had longer time in the machine. usually have like a lower TDS. They probably also need, um, they need more. Um, so you need to dose higher if you're trying to accomplish a certain extraction percentage. So if you're gonna, if you're gonna post blend and you have like a dark, a medium and a light, then that's why blend ratio is super important. That's why actually like your light, you'll actually have a smaller percentage than your darker roasted base where you have like a higher percentage. If that makes sense, you know, that way you're getting the proper extraction of each of those. So um, a great thing to, what I think is a great thing to do is if you have uh, multiple blends in your post blending, because you want them to be roasted at different levels, then I would recommend pulling shots of them as components to see uh, how, how they, how much, how they are, um, they extract. how they extract. Thank you. And then go using that data in order to get a more cohesive blend based on their um, how much you add of each component. Speaking now is Tony Kiro. Uh
5: I do both, depending on the context. Mm-hmm. Um, to be honest, um, I
3: don't know if it disagreed
5: though. The uh, f- for me um, part of the initial thing was scale. You know, if 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 you're doing even at a one to one to one Ratio on a three-blend, you know, just example. If you have an order come through for 35 pounds of coffee and your roaster outputs 30 pounds, you have a lot of coffee. (laughs) And, like, this is a business. Um, You know, you got to... If you have the means where you can, you know, balance that flux, great. If you don't, then you don't. Um, So... And for me, it was something I did, and I, you know, for for multiple reasons. But one of the things that gave me the confidence in doing it was that product is going to be ground together. It's going to be served together. I'm going to evaluate it and roasting together. Um, when I was learning to roast, it was before we were really talking about solubility. And the reason people talked about post roast blends was maximizing each individual component that's not the point of a blend. The point of a blend is to have a cohesive whole. And if you're maximizing all of the flavors of all of these, they're going to not mac. They're not going to be cohesive. You might one might the acidity of one might clash with the other that in a way could work better being treated uniformly. Um the other challenge with with it is to get solubility um has to do with how long you're in a lot of the phases of roast. And if you can and – and coffees you know, behave differently. They go through their different phases at different, different times. Um, but there is research being done by a few people that's mm-hmm. showing if we extend out the drying time, we are actually make, make it so that the, all the beans in, the, in those um, pre-roast blends um, go through those phases much more uniformly. So you do get similar end results.
4: Hmm.
0: About to speak is yeah. Jeff Woodley.
5: Um, I'll
4: just quickly add, um, I, I think some of the, my favorite espressos, uh, not all of them, but a lot of them have been blends. And I think they have the potential to be really uh, uh, versatile and, and complex. Uh, but I think they're also the more, some of the more challenging to do well because of all these things. So um, it can because they're uh, sort of seen as a staple, they can sometimes be maybe less efforts put into developing them sometimes and it's easy to just because they're always there um, to forget to check back in on them but i think that a good blend requires uh, uh, constant um, evaluation and feedback in iterations as coffees change Um, but also they're they're kind of they can be really great and, and a good blend i think will as different coffees rest will behave differently and taste a little bit differently and a good blend can also kind of rest on each other and extend the, the, the sort of sweet spot for when that espresso is really good. So you can have two coffees um, sort of morphing together as they rest and, and bringing that sweet spot out a little bit further and, and sort of making it easier for um, baristas to, or, or home user, whoever's pulling that shot, to get a good shot over um, different dates that that espresso is off the roast sounds
1: like you can almost split the answer into like censoring QC considerations and then also business and uh, yeah. considerations yeah. You know.
3: speaking next is Jen Apodaca. Yeah. we've done um, both in the same blend where we took two components and roasted them together but we wanted to keep the the highlight the, the the high component that was only like 15% that was also offered as a single origin and we're like we wanted the maximum acidity and um, floral notes in that coffee so that that one so it was kind of a a little bit of both, post, post, pre, blend, pre, post, blend. We've got one in the front here, a mashup. Yeah. A
0: member of the audience is asking, "How do you approach translating Akawa roast profiles
1: to production roast profiles?" Hot topic. Um, well, we can move through this one. This one is probably going to be one we have to move a little bit more more quickly through. Yep. Um, but something tells me there might be some post lecture conversation so if y'all are okay with that some people can ask questions depending on each person's individual schedule here so
0: speaking now is ben putt
2: i can speak really quickly to it i think um i think a lot of people want to be able to take a sample roast and easily apply it to larger production and i i am of the opinion that this only kind of works i to me the way it works is comparatively within coffee so if i know That I roasted this Colombian and the profile worked this way, and then I roast another Colombian and it required more development time or dried differently. It's probably going to do that on a larger scale as well. So I've I've done that before where I can say, oh, this coffee did need more heat in the Akawa. It's probably going to need more heat on our our larger roaster. Um, I'm of the opinion that we have – so the Akawa captures a lot of data. But if you think about how much is chemically happening in a roaster, roasters capture a very small amount of data. So I think the ability to transfer them is, is difficult. I do more as comparative.
3: Speaking next is Jen Apodaca. I think it depends on what you're trying to transfer it to, you know? Yeah. Like, uh, like upstairs in the roaster village, like I have like my Ikawa roast that was successful and then I do it on the Pro Bot, the Probatino. Like it's a one kilo, so it's going to be pretty similar. It's going to be a little longer because it's a little bit larger machine doing a larger batch, which is normal, right? You know, like you're roasting on a 70 kilo or 120 kilo. Your, your roast times are probably a bit longer than somebody roasting on a 12 kilo or a five kilo, right? And that makes sense because there's a whole lot more that you're roasting and it takes so much more thermal energy to produce. So, um, but going from the, like the Yakawa is interesting to me because it, if you're trying to translate it to go to a Probot, that's one thing you're trying to translate it to go to a Loring. That's probably easier actually trying to translate it to go to a Diedrich. That's also very different. All of these things have, um, all of these different types of roasters have different types of heat transfer, um, different types of, um, manipulations that are possible and not possible. So, um, one thing that I noticed on the Akawa, uh, just very shortly, I've just been playing with it and I still have—I still feel like I need to do it a little bit more to see if I have anything conclusive. But um, playing a, a, a lot with the airflow, you can really move around when you want first crack to happen. So a lot of air roasters, first crack happens very late, like 400, 400 degrees Fahrenheit or like two, 200 degrees um, Uh, Celsius, But um, on a drum machine, you might be looking, depending on your probe placement, of course, right? Um, You could be looking at anywhere between like 380 or 390 for first crack, maybe even 395, so much lower. Um, So there's ways that you can do it to mimic when first crack happens. So then you can kind of look at like um, maybe stages of the roast and then trying to translate that. But that's kind of really the first step and allow that. And it's not going to be conclusive with every coffee and just let yourself be wrong and say like, okay, well, that didn't work. Let's try something new, you know? Thanks. Thank you.
0: That was O.M. Miles, Tony Kiro, Jen Apodaca, Jeff Woodley, and Ben Putt at Expo in 2018. Remember to check your show notes for a full transcript of this lecture and visit CoffeeExpo.org for tickets to this year's event. This has been an episode of the SCA podcast. Thank you for joining us.